And do you know how many people would probably like run away at the sight of dismembered legs? Yeah. Dude, there's a four foot bong and a bag of wheat by your bed. <laughs> Tillywinks, the parlor game for nerds, is nearing extinction. It's in my pod! It's in my pod! <laughs> I will find proof. <laughs> I'm very easily startled, Mr. Finkerton. <laughs> I don't know which regulation body would regulate the uh, penis ring that you were talking about earlier. <laughs> I'm ready to remain conscious as we record this show. Hey, welcome to Medical Stuff. My name is Mark. I don't know which protocol I'm using tonight. And Frank, I'm and that is Chris. Dude, get your head out of your ass, Frankston over there. How you doing, man? Doing pretty good. What's the name of the show again? Medical stuff. How long have we had that name? Mm, I changed it last week. Oh shit! Yeah, I was just gonna. I did only did to see if you'd notice. Yeah, actually, you know what? I think, I think we came up with that name several hundred thousand views ago because not views, listens. Damn it! Gotta fuck that up. <laughs> that was great in my mind. Everybody <laughs> was rolling right through the old brain pan there, and it uh, tripped up on the way down to the mouth. So I think I think it's going to become a little bit. Um, tacky for me to keep bragging about this show after show but uh here we are now i'd say like it's the fourth week in a row of just exponential growth and we were talking last week i think we were really excited we had 3200 over the last seven days and we're about we're very very close to 4000 over the last seven days right now and that's from you all spreading the word and preaching the love of medical stuff Mm -hmm. and we love you all for it and keep please keep it up because it's working yeah, and then and eventually we, we get advertising and we start getting this money. We're going to give a portion of that to Mark and the other portion to me. <laughs> and you're not going to get any of it. But we're still going to thank you. Yes, but it will all be because of you. Yeah, because hey, at the end of the day, you get to listen to this and we charge you nothing for hey, it. This month, we made enough to cover our hosting fees. What? Yeah. I hope you'd never yeah. say that over the air because now like, there's proof that I need to pay more taxes. <laughs> like well, no, because no, it, uh, it went to the LLC. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, baby. So the LLC can pay the pet taxes. Hmm. <laughs> you and I haven't made a dime off this yet. God damn it. But the company has, uh, I'm going to say, broke even. We're operating in the black right now, sir. And you know what? Not a lot of companies can say that in their first year. <laughs> in their first or second month. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, the, I think the difference between those companies and our company is that our, uh, our overhead costs at this point are... Like nothing. Less than 50 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> so well, it's not a real high hurdle to if jump. If you include like the mixer and the mics and all that stuff, it gets up to yeah. probably, we probably got almost, and if you include well, the computers, we got probably almost a couple thousand dollars worth of equipment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Although, yeah. although the mixer was a birthday present. I'm going to cut that out. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the mixer, yes, we got and, with our you know, the, blood, the sweat, and tears. The, the purchasing of the extra microphone. We got to remember that. <laughs> Why do we need an extra microphone? Oh, gee, I don't know. Maybe because Chris Frankenstein, one of them. I wanted to see how it works. So it's a little no, no, because no, it was. Uh, remember, you're trying to make lapel mics for us. Yeah, and part and they, of that was and seeing they how it worked. worked Creston Mark, uh, they they worked, but the problem we ran into was that both lapel mics were picking up both voices. 
And the other problem we ran into was the fact that this was one microphone that used three different mics all synced up <laughs> and just was not meant to be taken apart like this. What? Like, it just wasn't. Are you saying that's not the manufacturer recommended use of yeah, it's not. microphone? It's nowhere in there. It just wasn't meant to do this. I did get really good at soldering by the end of it, which, in retrospect, I probably should have tried to be good at soldering before I started. Um, but by the end of it, I was really good at soldering. Anyway. So did it, did it say anywhere in the owner's manual to not take it apart? Oh, left and right. I had, oh. I, I had, I had to cut a sticker that said, don't cut the sticker. <laughs> anyway, so yeah. uh, one of the requests we've been getting lately, Chris, is um, for we have had requests for another paramedic story time episode. Mm-hmm. We've actually had requests so, for another paramedic to be on here. Anybody, <laughs> to replace, please. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or two. Two yeah. different paramedics on here. In fact, uh, Mark My Words Media needs to actually talk to us about something. I don't know. Yeah. Our own our own media company is going to fire us and replace us with two other more competent paramedics. Right, which is interesting because <laughs> Mark My Words Media is owned by Mark. <laughs> hey, I'm firing myself here, buddy. So okay, Mark needs so. to talk to Mark. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So. so this evening we thought we would do, uh, we've also had requests for paramedic, uh, different types of paramedic systems around the world, which is going to take a bit of work for me, just looking at protocols and trying to get into to, into the intricacies because. Yeah. And we do want to do that show. That's just, there's oh, a yeah. lot of research yeah. to get that right. Yeah, ex- ex- that's the point right there to get it right. I mean, I could go online and knock out a research in an hour and a half, oh, but you I would know, be you know messing would be a fun? lot of stuff up. You know, it would be fun. All right, I'm going to throw this out there to, to, to the listeners. And I'm not I am not saying we're going to do this, but I'm just saying if there's a listener out there that uh, is in the UK. Uh, Ireland, or, we got one. What's that? Ireland, we got one. Okay, well, <laughs> <laughs> we do. But yeah, there's. We, we also have a paramedic. We have a couple of paramedics in um, at least in Australia. Yeah. So how about this? If you are a paramedic and you are not in the United States. And oh uh, you are knowledgeable enough to where maybe you can hop on our show and be a Skyped in guest. That might be something we might want to work out. Okay, I'm not okay, saying... okay, real quick, techie nerd. Do you know how to Skype in a guest? Easy. Easy peasy. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We could definitely Does they have well. to have a microphone? Yeah, they'd have to have a microphone. And uh, we could even do Google Hangouts. Like, that's what Mark yeah, and I used to, to sync up. So we could even add it as a three-way call to a Google Hangout. Not a problem. But anyway, again, nothing I'm going to promise. <laughs> it might be something we work on and then have to can the last minute. But um, Or yeah. it may take a while. Yeah, or it may take a while. But if there's anyone who is yeah. interested and not in the United States, hit us up. And uh, let's see. Let's see where this goes. Yeah. yeah. We may end up with an amazing, awesome episode. Yeah. Uh, mark, uh, mark my words, may fire us and take some of these people from the other countries and use them. Yeah. God damn. You, know, we you have be, to sit uh, yourself down and fire you. That's going to be tough. It's, it's really good. It's gonna be, well, it's going to make it awkward at Christmas. Yeah. And, and toilet time. Are you going to try and train a replacement for you? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Well, the thing is, if I'm this incompetent at my job, then why would I train the trainer? Why would I train the new employee? Dude, I bet you wouldn't even give you two weeks. I bet you no. would just walk out on you. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. But I'm anyway. Not put, this, <laughs> not put up with this bullshit. I'm telling Fuck you right that. now. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so anyway, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to be talking about some of our local protocols and then uh, relaying those into real life situations. Now, all names, and we're not going to bring up any names, so all names are going to be changed to protect the, the hip and protect the, the innocent. I was say all names will actually be fairly entertaining. Right. Schmoozy McSchmoozerton. Mm-hmm. 
Cupcapes, Frickle Bottom. Um, <laughs> so, and I, I will say, I will say this too. Like, we, we are going to tell stories, and for there, there is, it's now a very small percentage of our listeners, but there's a small percentage of our listeners that know us and may even know of the call. Yes, we're going to get stuff wrong. It's intentional. It is absolutely 100% mm-hmm. intentional because if we got it too far right, that would be a HIPAA problem. And we don't want right. to. And, and here's the thing we're not afraid. It's not that I'm worried about what HIPAA is going to do to me. It's just there's a reason for these laws, and patient privacy right. is important. There is a trust between us and the public that we're not going to take some of their worst moments and, and put it on a podcast. Yeah, and put it on a podcast. So when we do to take the point these that moments, people know it's them. Yeah, exactly. We're not going to, we are not going to expose their lives for the sake of your, your entertainment. We're not that low. Yeah. Yet, so right. I mean, we want to make money, but we're not willing to go those depths to make money. Well, I mean, depends on how much. (laughs) Well, not those depths. We're willing to go to some depths. Don't get me wrong, but not those depths. Very true. So, okay. So, hey, our first protocol. We're going to talk about our uh, trauma system entry. So, yeah. in our area, we have what are called, where it is a trauma system entry protocol, and we have our uh, designated level one trauma centers. Hey, real quick. Should we, sorry, should we define what a protocol is a little bit more? Like exactly what a protocol is for us and what it does? Why we have screw them. Yeah. So, uh, (laughs) protocols, did you say, yeah, screw them? Oh, I thought you said, I thought you said, nah, true. I should have known better. Uh, all right. So real, real quick, a protocol, uh, most of your areas, uh, work under a protocol. Protocol is essentially a, guideline in some places it's more than just a guideline but it's usually a set of rules that based on your assessment it's what you can do so if you assess stroke symptoms here are your options to treat essentially is what it boils down to and it's approved by your local physicians yeah the best example i have is our uh, anaphylactic protocol right we i remember there was a lot of discussion for a while because in the protocol, it said, you know, Epi, Benadryl, such and such, such and such, such and such. Well, we get on scene of a call. We have a person who's having a reaction, but it's not anaphylaxis. Well, I think you and I both would give that patient some Benadryl and take them to the hospital. Right. They, they don't need Epi. No, they're they having need. an allergic reaction. Right. Well, there were a number of, uh, there was a large conversation about, well, yeah, but you have to give Epi first. And the important thing to remember for us, especially in this county or in this area, is that these are guidelines. These are options of what you can do. Right. And not set in stone. Now, there are places where it's set in stone. You do this, then you do this, then you do this. And if if you have to vary from that, you better be on the phone with the doc. Right. You know. You know. It's very much Luckily, we have... uh, have medical directors that put a certain amount of trust in our ability to make good decisions Mm -hmm. and most of the time that is well founded well Uh, and they and they find they do find that it is much better to have well-trained confident paramedics who can vary from their protocols when needed than minimally trained paramedics who are glued to a protocol and can't really think outside that box because mark and i have mentioned this too many times on this show probably is that you can't write a rule for every situation in ems no it's well you can't write a rule for every situation anywhere ems hands down right well, people find new and inventive ways of screwing up their lives every single day. Absolutely. And so you cannot write a protocol to account for that. Mm-hmm. You know, so, yeah. 
So that's a protocol. Basically, it's a set of guidelines. So, you know, we'll have a chest pain protocol. We have a respiratory uh, protocol. We have an altered mental status protocol. We have a stroke protocol, you yeah. know, and we have trauma system entry protocol. Right. So uh, in larger er- uh, urban areas, you will have what are called level one trauma facilities. And these are hospital or hospitals. We have two in our area uh, that have specialists there to handle trauma. Now, they are in-house, or if it's more rare specialty, I think they're still on a, like a 20-minute column, but your main your main doctors and teams are going to be there in-house. All the time. And that's the difference between like a level one and a level two. So, like right. a level two may have the same capabilities, but not all the physicians are in-house. Right. Um, so, on the protocol, we have what are called uh, mandatory entry criteria. And these are things that... Uh, if you have, if you have any of these, really, you need to be seriously thinking about entering your patient. Yeah. So right. a mandatory is so pretty much the entry criteria. It's you have mandatory, and then you've got discretionary. Right. Mandatory is must go to a trauma center. Discretionary is like is basically telling the paramedic like, hey, think about this. Right. You know, the, these are things that really you should be considering going to a trauma center. Now, trauma center may be farther away than, say, a local area hospital. Um, but the idea is that it's far more worth it for us to take the time to drive farther than it is to just go to the nearest hospital. And this is where it kind of varies from the public perspective. A lot of times the public thinks we should pick up a patient and get to the nearest doctor. And that's what we got to do, get to the nearest doctor. Well, no, that's not true. And the trauma system guidelines is a good example of that in the sense that it tells paramedics, use your brain and figure out what this patient needs after the ambulance. And what they're right. going to need is they're going to need immediate surgery. Okay. Right. And so that's what's available at the trauma center. And so that's why we will take that extra drive to get there. Right. So some of our uh, mandatory entry criteria, there's a, uh, we have in our protocols, we have it broke up into three different uh, groups of mandatory entry. There's physiological, and this would be a Glasgow Coma Scale, which is a rating of uh, 3 to 15 that assesses a person's mental status. Yeah. Now, a GCS, uh, that's what we call it in the streets. Uh, yeah, that's what G- the street folk call it. <laughs> I actually hate it when paramedics talk. I hate like in, uh, like in a lot of the books out there. Uh, It'll have like, like there's, there's one particular brand of book and I'm not going to call out the brand, but they have a subsection in each chapter and it's like EMS on the streets. And it's basically, <laughs> which every time I read it, like that's the way <laughs> you're laughing because I think you know the book. Um, uh, no, I don't. What it made me think of was a Cheech and Chong routine. Anyway. <laughs> well, anyway. Well, it's because there's this police officer in this. Uh, oh, I know this. Yeah, they're like, hey, what is this? They're like, it's a doobie, it's a joint, it's a blah, blah, blah. And he goes, no, it's a marijuana cigarette. <laughs> so, any hoosers. But that's how it comes off to me, is people that say yeah. that you know, the, in the streets. Usually the person saying that is not in the streets. No. Like usually, yeah. yeah. But anyway, so Glasgow's Coma Scale, the funny thing about that is that if you are a table, let's say you are a rock <laughs> You're, you know, you're a ballpoint pin. You have a GCS of three. If you're on scene. Yeah, exactly. If you are present, you are on scene. You could be burnt to a cinder. You'd be a pile of ash. You are, yeah. you have a GCS of three. And then a 15 is just like Mark and I, well, 
Yeah. Just like most people would be. And the yeah, way it 15, is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 15 is the top. And it breaks up into three categories. And basically, we assess their eye movement, their verbal response, and their motor movement. I'm not going to get too far in depth in that. I actually think we have an episode where we do go more in depth. Um, right. Probably our head trauma episode. But anyway. So I think that uh, everybody should listen to every single episode we've ever made to try and find that. Two or three times, actually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But download them over different days. That way we get the numbers. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> we love you all for that. So uh, in our mandatory trauma or physiological criteria, GCS is going to be less than 13 or blood pressure less than 90. Yeah. I'm so sorry. GCS less, or that, less than or equal to 13. Right. Uh, Glasgow Coma Scale less than 90. And if the respirations are less than 10 or greater than 29. Right. right. Yeah. That's the respiratory rate. So how many times are breathing per minute? Right. So if you have a depressed breathing too far, entry criteria. Now, these are all associated with, with trauma. There has to be trauma has to be the trigger. You know, if it's an overdose, then we don't like enter them in the trauma system at that point. So we have some mandatory anatomical criteria, uh, all penetrating injuries to the head, neck, torso and extre- extremities. So uh, all, all penetrating uh, injuries to the head, neck, torso and extremities proximal to the elbow and knee. So if it's below the knee or below the elbow, that's not a mandatory criteria. Okay. Uh, flail chest, so you get uh, what three or more broken, two or more, two to three or more broken ribs. But when we say below the elbow or knee, what we mean is like away from the body, towards the hands. Yeah, towards the feet. Yeah, towards the hands, towards the feet. Past your knee. So, uh, two or more long bone fractures, so like a humerus or uh, a femur. Yeah, proximal long bone. It's a fun way to right. say that. If anyone's not familiar with terms proximal and distal, proximal means closer to the body, distal means farther away from the body. Right. Like, I'm proximal to me, but Chris is distal to me. Exactly. Chris is right here. You are over there. No, I am here. This is this was a 10-minute conversation before the <laughs> podcast started, just so you know. Yeah, so. we sat there for way too long debating yeah. who was here and who was there. Yeah, because I'm here and you're there, and that's just obvious. No, I'm very clearly here. I'm looking at <laughs> you. You are over there. So, a crushed or degloved <laughs> or mangled extremity. Uh, amputation proximal to the wrist or the ankles. Uh, suspected pelvic fracture. Pelvic fractures are bad. Oh, they are. Hugely bad. I saw a guy walk with a pelvic fracture one time. Oh, God. Yeah. He'd uh, been hit on his Harley. Damn. And he was walking around. Well, he was walking around. See, he looked like he'd just gotten off a horse. But yeah, we got him laid down and everything like that. Did a quick assessment. We're like, we think you fractured your pelvis. And sure enough, he had a fractured pelvis. Uh, open or depressed skull fracture or motor sensory deficit will be the other mandatory anatomical criteria. So motor or sensory deficit. I have a brief story about this. Um, so every now and then people get a little dramatic on scene. Might be hard to believe. And sometimes people tend to breathe very fast, hyperventilation. Uh-huh. And one of the things that can occur in hyperventilation is your hands can get numb and tingly because of an imbalance of CO2. And um, that's what was happening with this gal. And this was out in a more rural fire department. And we get out there to help out. And they have her backboarded. They have a bracelet on her. And they are, uh, Life Flight has thankfully just told them that they can't fly. <laughs> Jesus. And I get out there and I'm like, hey guys, what's going on? Like, oh, it's drop system entry. She has no feeling in her hands or feet. And I'm like, hey guys, she's hyperventilating. And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, and like, yeah, so her respiratory rate is up. And so they were reading it because she was hyperventilating. That gave her a respiratory rate of above 29. Right. And she had numbness and tingling, which is technically a sensory deficit. 
<laughs> and they were calling her a trauma system because of this. And there is like no mechanism. Right. There is no mechanism. And finally, I slow her down. This gets a lot better. I slow her down and talk to her because her her vehicle is slightly up against a tree. Like she hit a tree, but like almost at yeah. a speed where she was like parking. And I'm like, hey, man. So I finally get her slow down and talk. I'm like, what happened? She goes, well, I was having a panic attack and I pulled over. <laughs> so she was having a panic attack. She pulled over and she hit the tree. Someone drove by, said vehicle into a tree. <laughs> All these, this is, go ahead. yeah. All these people start going, and this fire crew, God bless them, uh, bit of a bit of a B squad, um, pulled her out and assessed her. And here's the thing: their assessment wasn't wrong. Right. She was breathing over twenty nine times a minute, and she did have sensory deficits. It was just not trauma related. Not trauma related. So, anyway. Yeah, it's uh, were they volley crew? Um, yes, yes, they were. Yeah, and that's I mean that's the the God love the volleys. They are there and they will, man. They are there. They do it because of passion for the job. Yeah, but uh, sometimes they're um, just their experience level. Well, and you and, know. and I do want to want to make it clear is not all volunteers are inexperienced. I will I'll call it one of our uh, local fire departments. I'll, I'll say it. Uh, Banks Fire. They're volunteers. They're almost entirely comprised of volunteers. Mm-hmm. And they get a lot of experience. And so they are experienced yeah. crews out there. But that doesn't mean that every volunteer gets the same level uh, of experience. And typically you find lesser experienced people in it in a volunteer uh, role. So I just wanted, I just wanted well, to be clear that, you know, just because someone's a volunteer doesn't mean they're inexperienced. We have plenty. Right, of and it ex- doesn't mean that they're doing, like you said, they weren't wrong. No, they, they weren't. They were just coming at it from the wrong direction. And this is what happens. So a lot of times, and even experienced paid medics do this. Oh, sure. They start treating the patient based upon what they read on the notes on the way of the call. Yeah. Vehicle into like, a tree. Well, no, this is right. Vehicle into a tree. Well, this is trauma. Yeah. And it's like, mm, how about we get there and assess our patient? Yeah, let's you know? get there and assess. And- so, this is why I don't really listen to dispatch ever. Ba-doom-ching. Yeah. Aren't I you also dispatch for our company. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, our uh, mechanisms of injury, uh, if we have a fall greater than 20 feet, uh, one story is equal to uh, 10 foot. So are these, are these uh, mandatory or are we at the discretion? Yes. Okay. They're, no, they're, they're the um, uh, mechanism, mechanism of injury mandatory. Uh, criteria entry. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Uh, children greater than 10 feet. Uh, High-risk auto crash. Uh, greater than 12 inches of intrusion into the occupant uh, part uh, part of the car, into the actual place where the patients ride. Yeah. Because you can get 12 or 16 inches of compression of the engine compartment, and people are walking away from it. Right, because that's because a lot of cars are, cars are yeah. built to do that. Yeah, So exactly. Yeah. You know. Um, or greater than 18 inches in any site. Right. Uh, ejection, partial or complete from an automobile. If you get if somebody in the, if you get ejected from a car, yeah, you're getting entered. Mm-hmm. Uh, death in the same passenger compartment. So you're the driver, you have a passenger, you have a bad wreck, one of you dies, the other one's being entered. If there was enough mechanism to kill one person, we're going to assume it did bad things to the other person. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, then the vehicle telemetry telemetry data consistent with a high risk injury. So I I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mark. There are vehicles out there now where they have telemetry data that basically records forces during a crash, and they will give a notice of the forces present in the crash, 
of whether or not this person needs to be. Oh, you're talking like uh, like an OnStar sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'll say yeah. What the hell? Sure. I, I haven't specifically heard that we can get that information, but, you know, I don't know everything, Chris. What? Actually, you're going to need to cut that. I don't want that to be generally known. Oh, okay. No worries. <laughs> I'm sure you'll cut that and be, yeah. I'm sure that'd be the first thing you go to when you edit this. Yeah. Um, then any pedest- uh, any auto versus pedestrian or bicyclists that are thrown, run over, <laughs> seems obvious, or with significant greater than 20 mile an hour impact, then a motorcycle or ATV crash over 20 miles an hour. So, uh, years ago. I was working with a buddy of mine. I don't think you mind me saying his name, DJ uh, Thomas. Gotcha. And uh, we were at the West End of our county. Has he heard the podcast? Because he might. Might. Uh, if he does, he'll call me, call me a jackass. Right. He's fine with it. <laughs> I know DJ and I have been friends long enough that I've said much worse things about him than this call. So Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we uh, get called to this call at an intersection that's kind of rural, right? We're like, hey, easy peasy. We'll go out here. We'll make a right. We'll go up this. Go up this road. Make a left at that thing. And we should get right there. We had not worked the West End for uh, about a month, just because of the way the calls have been going on, and we've been mainly the East End of the county, which is busier. Apparently, this whole area had been dug up for construction. <laughs> <laughs> so, we're on these roads with like no familiar landmarks. I'm not 100% sure how we found the call, but I will say it really tripped everybody out when we came from the other side of the call. <laughs> they just weren't really <laughs> expecting it. And what it was, was it, we were second unit in. They were expecting us to come down the paved portion from the west. Mm-hmm. And we came all of a sudden out of the night from the east on this dirt road. Uh, but the call was an ATV crash where these people um, had been drinking and we're not wearing helmets and they were out running around on these dirt roads that have been made for the construction. It's like three o'clock on a Sunday morning. And you know, those big signs that show the end of the road that are like reflective and they're on like big metal stands. Oh, like yes, large pieces of wood. Right. Well, those aren't reflective on the back <laughs> <laughs> and they were coming from the dirt side. They did not see it. And they, yeah, they drove right through one of those on an ATV with no helmet on. Oh, so they were yeah. fine. Yeah, walked away from it, got a refusal. Gotcha, okay. So, <laughs> so, yeah, so we also have some, uh, Chris was talking about the, um, the uh, These are, well, they're called comorbid. These are discretionary stuff. Yeah, this is the, ah, uh, think about it stuff. Right. Now, generally, if you have two or more of these, yeah, you should probably enter. Yeah, and that's now, not written, oh, sorry, go ahead, Mark. No, go ahead. That's, uh, and that's not written down anywhere. That's just, it's something I've always been told well, and is generally well, a funny. good rule of thumb. It, it used to be. used to be in protocol. Yeah, well. Year, years ago, if you had two or more comorbid, comorbid factors or one comorbid factor with anything, any of the other criteria. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so these are like, uh, if you're over the age of 55, uh, uh, blood pressure less than 110, uh, a person who's over 65, mm-hmm. uh, low impact mechanism like ground or falls, which may result in severe in, or uh, ground level falls, which may s- result in severe injuries. Uh, one of my worst head injury patients was a ground level fall. Yeah. You know, it's amazing. What can happen. Just, just the way you fall and your head hits the ground. Yeah. Um, so, you know, stuff like that. Burns without any other trauma should be taken to the burn. You know, there's just some comorbid factors. And we have one that's just paramedic discretion. You look at it and you go, 
I'm not really finding anything right now, but, but they totally should be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We should probably go to the trauma system just to make sure that everything's. And so I do want to make a quick mention here about, well, so we talk about like patients older than 55. Why? Why is a patient older than 55 need to have additional trauma considerations? Because <laughs> they're old. Well, right. And here's the thing is when you get old, shit breaks easier. Um mm-hmm osteoporosis is more common in the elderly patients and that means you have porous bones the other thing that you have too is your vasculature loses its elasticity so a lot of your vasculature like your arteries and your veins uh, they can stretch they can move about without much problem if you don't believe me find a vein on your hand and push it around but as you get older those like, things like stretch armstrong exactly pull as hard as you can nothing wrong will happen um <laughs> don't don't do that don't no, no. It's, it's fine i'm a doctor um but we we made like 40 bucks this month we got to be careful of our <laughs> empire here okay? was, we can't be giving out bad advice so we can sue us uh, fine you get my 79 cents um but anyway well I, they get 70 percent of that the lawyers get 30 yeah <laughs> I'd probably get more than that. Anyway, um, so I'd be away. Oh, oh, sorry. Uh, jump. Uh, remind me to tell you something after this. Okay. After we're done recording. No, okay. It's completely. It's completely non uh, medical stuff. Or, uh, Perfect. Did you get? Did you get your ninety one dollar check from Arco? No, I didn't. Can we talk about this after though? So I don't have to edit too much out. Yeah. Okay. Leave it in. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> oh, well. Um. Anyway, so there it was. File around me. Uh, but no, uh, so yeah, and they lose their elasticity, and so when they take an impact, instead of just kind of stretching around and returning to normal, they might rip or tear. And if this is an artery, that's going to be a problem. So, or it can happen. Uh, they're also more prone because of this. Uh, older patients are more prone to head bleeds as well that you cannot see from the outside internal head bleeds so also on top of that the brain does tend to shrink over time a little more room to bounce around yeah for that coup contra coup effect in there yeah we got a good head trauma episode that you should listen to Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah. and a traumatic brain injury yeah we do Mm -hmm. man we're all about the trauma trauma oh hey there (laughs) oh that looks traumatic there you might want to have a doctor look at that you know yeah there it's really ringing his (laughs) noggin So, um, Aaron Marigold is having a tackle party. You got to bring your own tortilla, though. So, I did that. I went to my in laws a long time ago. They live in uh, Minnesota. And I went there. And that that joke is funny where no one has that accent. <laughs> that joke, you're just yeah. advertising a party when you're right. like, you try that in Minnesota. People turn like, oh, Margot, really? <laughs> now are you talking down the street Margot Peppernin or are you talking about Margot Peterson a lot of people get them confused because Peppernins and the Petersons been friends a long time you know and their names are often the same and they, a lot of times they go to the same bar but if you notice the Peppernins oftentimes prefer the lakefront bars where you can just paddle your boat right up and by the way have you tried the starfish over at the lakefront bar near yeah it just kind of goes on and you thought you were just telling a funny joke right so, uh, no trauma one eats starfish, by the way. I'm going to point that out. I, I just said, this, you try this. No one eats starfish. That's not a right. thing. Sunfish <laughs> is what I meant to say. Pepe, right. <laughs> Which sun is a star, but anyway. Wow. That really went a lot further than I thought it was going to. <laughs> I was going to wait that for got, I wanted you to just no. yell, stop! Like, that so, was what I was going so my, my $91 ARCO check is nothing, nothing for the podcast, but that made it in. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Your digression into uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin esque. All, all hail the editor. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> so, trauma system intracriteria. So, I think we're done. I think, we, yeah, I think we got through all of it. 
Yes, but uh, so uh, quick, uh, another story, right? Yeah, because this it. is paramedic story time. Exactly. So we, um, I'm on post. I've got a third rider and work with a partner, and we hear an unknown if injury call go out, and we get these a lot, especially in the rural areas, because people hear a wreck. Right? They that sounded bad. I'll call nine one one. So um, fire department uh, started out that way to go check on it. It was uh, in the northern end of our uh, response area. So about 10 minutes later, we get called. This is now an injury wreck. Somebody from the wreck had walked down to the uh, house and said, no, people are hurt rather badly, actually. Mm. Uh, we get there. Fire's just getting there. They've got one person out. They've got two more people in one vehicle and three people in another vehicle. The three people in the other vehicle were in like a suburban and they're doing pretty good. <laughs> cool. The one person out and the two people still in the other vehicle are like in a, um, like an S10 pickup truck. Oh, okay. Older pickup which truck. Which is not a huge pickup truck for those people who don't know the S10. This is more of a uh, uh, mid-sized pickup truck, I guess. You know. Uh, so, the driver's dead. Okay. Straight up. Yeah. Uh, I walk up. The local fire department, which at that point was a volunteer, they're doing really well. Uh, they've got one patient out. I'm like, okay, we need to get this guy on a board. And I look down and I go, is he fighting you or is he seizing? Oh, he's fighting us. Hmm. Okay. Very rhythmically. It's odd. Yes. (laughs) I look into, so I look at my third rider and I'm like, go get me a board or a couple of boards. Right. And And the person, my third rider. Mark's talking about wipe off boards, by the way. He likes to doodle on scene. Exactly. Like his mouth looks like this. Yeah. Okay. So this car was going this way (laughs) and this car was, no, I'm talking about a long spine board. Uh, I look in the car and there's one firefighter with the uh, middle occupant who is breathing and he's trying to figure out how to get a sea collar on her. Her, she is slid down so that her butt is hanging over the wheel well or the uh, foot well. So her head is pressed up against the back seat and her chin is on her chest. Oh boy. Yeah. Well, first of all, you're not going to get a collar on her. <laughs> you know, and he's like trying to figure out different ways to do it. I'm like, get some other people. Let's get her out of there and onto a board and we'll call her there. So I turn around and I need to go let my partner know what's going on because uh, she is trying to uh, get the vehicle ready to leave. As I walk by the first patient that's now on a board, I'm like... No, no, he's seizing. We need to get some oxygen on him and get him to the truck as soon as we can. We have more. Uh, we have life flight and route or the helicopter service and route. Um, we also have other ambulances and route. So I'm walking, taking a couple steps back to the ambulance and my partner is backing and she's turning. Now, company policy is we have a backing partner in these situations, mm-hmm. right? Somebody at the back of the vehicle. Sure is. Uh, gr- watching everything. She has one. It's a deputy. Good enough. He's trained, you know, except the deputy's not paying attention. <laughs> Whoops. He's talking to somebody else. And so I'm probably 50, 60 foot from the ambulance and he's backing her into his cruiser. <laughs> <Nah>. <laughs> so I yell at the top of my lungs. And for those of you who don't know me, I can be loud. <laughs> my voice tends to carry. I yell at the top of my lungs, stop. <laughs> like, the way my partner told us, she goes, everything stopped on scene, including the bird that was flying by just stopped right in midair. It's like, okay. <laughs> right. The bird probably thought he was going to hit something. But 
So she looked at me and I pointed and she looked in her offside mirror. She's like, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> so uh, the two people that, survive, uh, that sur- survived the initial impact in that rig, they both got entered. One went by life flight. We ended up having to, uh, I gave him some first said, and then we ended up having to knock him down tube them. Mm-hmm. So knocking them down is paralyzing them and tubing them is uh, intubating. So putting a rigid uh, pipe basically down into the trachea so that you can, be- you can breathe for the patient. And then the uh, young lady uh, that we took that had been in the car, she woke up on the way to the hospital and they both ended up being pretty good. But yeah, so those would be the de- death of the same occupant in the vehicle, automatic entry criteria for everybody in that car. Mm-hmm. So, so, and then I've got a story that I'll tell. Um, again, this is a story time episode. You know what you tuned into. Um, right. But this one's going to be a little bit different in the sense that a lot of times if you go on a trauma call and someone has coded, in other words, no heart or no heartbeat and not breathing, very seldom, I'm not going to say never, but very seldom do we do much uh, because trauma codes don't really survive. So oftentimes those end up being... When you say don't really survive, it's actually statistically less than 1% of the time. Right. So so we get called out to a call and it's a vehicle into a tree, not the one I was talking about earlier, uh, but this one is a vehicle into a tree. And it's a rough tree. We get there and this patient has a huge laceration right on his head. We pull him out and uh, he's got very, very faint, like carotid pulse, and he's not breathing. So we start bagging him. We get the monitor on. By the time we get the heart monitor on and the defib pads on, we've lost pulses. All we have is an agonal rhythm, which agonal rhythm basically means the heart's trying because it's not completely dead yet, but you're getting the occasional beat that comes in, and there's no pulse with it's, that. So It's a dying rhythm. Yeah. So we start... We start CPR, we start chest compressions, we're doing that whole thing, and we really start kind of thinking, it's like, okay, so this looks like a trauma code because he has a laceration on his head. But then we start looking at the car. This is a slow road that had heavy traffic. He could not have been going that fast. And Bicer's like, yeah, he just rolled off the road until he hit a tree. He hit the tree so softly, one, his airbags didn't even deploy. Mm-hmm. And two, there's no damage to his car. The tree just stopped the car. Right. And so then we're all sitting there, all of a sudden we're like, you know what? This isn't trauma anymore. This is medical. And this is where becoming a paramedic who assesses really well and working in a system where your assessment is cherished and supported. This is where that becomes important is because if this was mishandled, this could have been treated as a trauma code, but it wasn't mishandled. And we started treating it as a medical code. And this guy lived. He made it all the nice. way. He made it all the way to discharge. I've actually got to meet him since. Wow! Uh, and he had this was. I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but fucking hey, toot toot. Um, toot. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this actually went really, really well. What we ended up, you know, doing was. I hope that didn't come over. No, it didn't. Uh, what we ended up doing was. Uh, <laughs> We ran this uh, as a code 99. We'll go into what that is later. Uh, But what ended up happening was a massive heart attack. And as we're working this code, the family rolled up on scene because he was at a soccer game and said, I'm having some terrible heartburn. I need to go get some more Tums because he's been popping Tums for the last 24 hours because his heartburn has been killing him. It is your heart, but it's not burning. Yeah, exactly. And what he's having was a huge MI. And he had something called a global 
myocardial infarction. So a myocardial infarction is a heart attack. A heart attack is whenever tissue in your heart is not getting blood supplied to it, usually due to a clot. And Well, the, the term myocardial infarction, myo means muscle, mm-hmm. cardio means heart, and infarction means death. Yes. So, so <laughs> bad. Yeah. So there you go. Muscle heart death. Uh, so muscle heart death is occurring in this guy. And norm- it sounds like it has been for the last 24 hours on some level. Yeah. And so a lot of times what we'll do is we'll further define this heart attack by where it is. We'll say it's an inferior myocardial infarction, which means it's on the lower part of the heart or it's lateral, which means it's off to the <laughs> it's side. Just not worth- it's, not, it's not that it's not worthy of our attention. Yeah. That's inferior to us. Yeah. Nah, <laughs> just wait until they get a superior one. No. Um, right. Yes. But anyway, so basically, and, and, and so if someone says someone's having a global MI, that means everything. Mm-hmm. is clotted off and the whole heart's dying and the prognosis is low this guy made it yeah yeah he was young he's he, I, I can't i don't want to even give a hint to his age but um he was a younger gentleman statistically speaking in terms of those who have heart attacks and uh yeah and he made it but it was one of those calls where if you don't know your shit and you're not paying attention could have easily because he had a laceration on his head Because then he probably got the laceration just from losing consciousness and dropping his head forward and hitting his own steering wheel. But it had been very easy to pull him out and be like, you know what? He's got a he's got a head lack. He hit a tree. Let's not Mm -hmm. let's not run this. But thankfully we had our wits about us and and uh, and we actually didn't suck. So and the guy lived because he didn't suck. So let's talk about code ninety nine. Wait a second. So just the other day we had uh, an MVA. And uh, we showed up and this guy's unresponsive. But when we start looking at him and we start looking at the scene, we're like, okay, again, this is a medical, you know, the trauma is not causing this. There's a medical thing that went on. And yeah, he ended up having a a stroke. Stroke. And we took took him to the closest stroke appropriate hospital as opposed to going to a trauma hospital farther away. Or a stroke inappropriate hospital. Right. You know, those are a little more rare, but you know, when you find a good one, you know, it's uh, helpful. <laughs> oh God, goodness, goodness gracious me. So the code 99 protocol, this is a good one to hit on. So Mark, what's a code 99? Uh, so back in the day, uh, when people were talking on the radio, they used, uh, well, everybody's heard 10 They've heard, you know, the 10 codes in some form. Uh, 10-4 was always that you copied it. Uh, 10-6 was you were busy. Uh, 10-20, what's your 20? 10-20, at your location. 10-8 meant you're back in service, you know. Um, There were also 12 codes. So this is where you hear, sometimes you hear people say, well, this is if you're listening to uh, TV shows or if you're in a hospital and uh, you hear somebody's a 12-34 you know, that's a psychiatric patient. Well, then they also had codes uh, or signal codes is what they were actually called. And like a uh, signal 48 was a natural death. Uh, signal 30 was a traumatic death. Uh, signal three was a psychiatric patient. Well, uh, a signal code 99 was a cardiac arrest. So it's just become a code 99. And uh, people tend to use that. If, you hear, if you're in a hospital and you hear code blue, same thing. Right. So... Cardiac arrest. Basically, the heart um, is not doing is either doing nothing or doing things that are incompatible with life. Right. It's not pushing out blood for whatever reason. Right. It's not doing. Now, I want to get something straight real quick, and I know I've talked about this before in the podcast, but we don't shock flatline. Wait, what? Okay. 
<laughs> Most of us don't shock flat. Yeah, don't shock flat. Why would anyone shock flatline? It seems. So when we shock somebody, we're not trying to jumpstart the heart. Yeah, this is more of a. We're actually kind of doing the opposite. We're, no, we're not kind of. We're doing yeah. the opposite. We're trying to stop the heart because the heart is in a rhythm that is uh, incompatible with life. Mm-hmm, the uh, and we can, I believe in our cardiac uh, episode, we go into some of these ventricle fibrillation, ventricle tachycardia, you know, uh, we have under our cardiac arrest protocols, we have uh, five different subsections. One of those being uh, a post arrest resuscitation. Right. So what do you do after? So, so right. If you get a pulse back. Mm-hmm. So here's one of the things is that, um, Cardiac arrest, if you want to know who the best people on the planet are for cardiac arrest, it's paramedics. Um, And that's not research. That's just because I'm one and I'm going to say that. But um, it's one of the things is that what paramedics do in a cardiac arrest is so successful and increases your chances so much to the point now that most protocols that I have heard of, including our own, really center on, look, when you're on scene, you work until you get pulses back. Because here's the truth. The hospital's not going to do anything for this person. They can't do anything for this person until they get the person stabilized. So let's say they're having a massive heart attack. And that's what's caused this code 99. Well, they're not going to send a dead guy up to the cath lab. Right. They have to get that heart pumping again before the guy can go back up. Now, I'm not going to say he's get the heart pumping again to the point that it's good and he can do it tomorrow. You know, like, because um, they can't. But... So here's the thing. So when someone's in the emergency room, whether they're in the emergency room or face down in a parking lot somewhere, the code 99 is ran the same way. Well, not necessarily exactly the same. There are differences in protocols, but generally speaking, the same things are being done. Well, CPR is going to be done. Uh, Multiple studies have now shown that CPR increases, good CPR increases survivability tremendously. Yeah. And you a know. lot of the same medications are going to be given. The hospital might have a few alternatives, but generally speaking, you're going to see some pressors get used and some antidysrhythmics get used. Both the ER so has those. Pressors are things that uh, are going to make your the heartbeat harder or and the vascular constrict, the vascular to constrict. And then dysrhythmia, uh, dysrhythmics are things that basically make the heart happy. So it doesn't, when you have an irritable heart, it throws odd beats and odd rhythms and it helps uh, cut down on that. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so when we do these these rhythms, whether it's in the field or it's in the emergency room, when people are in, the, are in a Code 99, we follow, generally speaking, we follow these algorithms. And it's basically, um, it kind of, cycles around at every two minute check you don't need to do it that way but that's one common method uh but we'll start with a systole so mark said there's five sub- subsections but there's four primary rhythms that contribute to a code 99 and the first one is a systole that is your classic flat line so the very first thing we're going to do we're going to start compressions every time uh starting cpr and maintaining cpr and not letting up has really increased uh people's ability to get out of the hospital alive and one of the ways we do that now is we actually have an accelerometer it's a little puck that goes on the patient's chest where we can actually monitor with actual data how good of a compression we're doing it used to be you put your fingers on the carotid artery 
and hoped you could feel a pulse every time the person pushed down. Uh, well, we still well, do that. The accelerometer does, it measures speed of compressions, uh, depth of compressions, and it can even tell if you're letting the chest come back to its original position to allow the heart to refill. Yeah. And the monitor's not shy about telling you when you're doing things wrong. No, it's not <laughs> telling everyone in the room yeah. when you're doing things wrong. Exactly. <laughs> Press harder. Compress you know. deeper. Right. Pull my Allow hair. for full chest. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, I was going to go with allow for full chest recoil, but you yeah, know. You know. Uh, <laughs> do your thing. Uh, so, the first thing we're going to do, we're going to start those compressions. And usually someone else is going to start working on the patient's airway. That's usually going to be a bag valve mask. A, a simple, we're going to do simple stuff first. And that's a bag valve mask, which is just a bag attached to a mask that you put over their face and you squeeze the bag and it pushes a breath in. So we're going to do that. And we're also going to apply defibrillator pads immediately because that's how we're going to know what rhythm you're in. Uh, when we start with someone, all we know is that they don't have a heart rate or they don't have a heartbeat and or a pulse. Jesus. Um, and so we got to figure out why. So we put these defibrillator pads on and the pads can actually read as well. So the pads will not only be able to shock, but it will show us what's currently going on in the heart. And if it's a big flat line, what we're going to do is we're going to continue compressions. We're going to establish an IV or an IO, and we're going to start giving drugs. So this is generally the way that I run one of these things is what I'll do is we'll get our IV or our IO established. We will give one milligram of epinephrine uh, through the IV. Oh, by the way, an IV is uh, into a vein an IO is actually into the bone. Uh, and we, we talked about that in our vascular vasculature. Yeah, vascular access, uh, I believe. Yeah. yeah, and that's just, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool stuff. So we can actually drill into people's bones and give meds that way. It's actually very effective. And then in, so then we'll do compressions again for two minutes. What we'll do is we will uh, cycle out the compressors, whoever's compressing, and in that two-minute mark. And what we'll do is we'll view uh, when that's happening, because we want to keep the chest compressions going as much as possible. When that's happening, we'll take a look and see what's on the monitor. And if it's still asystole, we're going to do another two minutes and then check again. And if it's still asystole, we'll give another round of epinephrine. Now, one of the things also I want to point out that's really important is we will change compressors now very often. It was determined that if you get one guy who's doing compressions or only one or two guys doing compressions the entire time, they get tired. Because if you've never done chest compressions on a prolonged code before... Uh, oh, it's tiring. Yeah, and and I mean, and a lot of it's like next day stuff. You're like, I wasn't supposed to bend that way uh, that many times. So the problem is that you're on your knees and you're just using muscles that you don't normally use, and so you're going to be stiff the next day, probably. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, so I was just looking him up real quick. Quiz, 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 quiz. Yes. Hey, quiz. How you doing? I'm good. <laughs> um. So, cardiac arrest survivability rates by the American Heart Association for 2018. Where was it? Uh, so, 51% of the time uh, in pre-hospital settings, the cardiac arrest is unwitnessed. And 10% of EMS-treated cardiac arrest uh, patients for, of any age survive. And then 9% of them leave the hospital with good neurological function. So... Even with everything we do, only statistically 10% actually survive the event. Yeah. Yep. And 9% actually leave with good neurological function. So, 
don't get in your position where you need where you go into cardiac arrest is what I'm saying. Right, exactly. Now, some some places are better have better statistics than others, but generally speaking, well, that's that's all. That's including. I mean, a lot of times when you see the higher survivability rates, mm-hmm. they're looking at specific types of codes. Right, exactly. Like you know, witness arrest versus taking, unwitnessed. Right, or depending on what the rhythm is. You know, if they're in a, a V-fib or V-tac versus asystole. Asystole, I mean, there's there's just nothing going on in the heart at that point. Yeah, it's just dead. <laughs> so, you know, whereas with V-fib or V-tac, you've got, uh, you know, you've got some rhythm. You've got activity there to work with. You just need to get it more in a, in a more coherent manner. That's, so. that's the thing about asystole is it's really hard to tell if someone has cellular viability there or not because... A heart where the cells are dead and they will no longer transmit electricity, therefore no longer beat, is a systole. Um, but they could have viability. You just can't tell. In V-fib, at least you know there are some cells firing. And we'll talk about what V-fib is in a little bit. But at least you know there right. are some cells transmitting electricity. Something is going on. And so you have a little bit better uh, right. of a chance. Um, so should we... So bop? had a call... Real quick. No worries. Go ahead. I was say, should we? Well, I was going to tell a story. Being oh, go ahead. Tell tell a story. <laughs> We're at fifty two minutes, by the way. I got a story. Okay. Yeah. Um. So this was early in the morning. It was uh between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, by early in the morning, I mean like six thirty. Okay. This was. I like to say this call was the American Heart Association wet dream. Oh, nice. Uh. Well, because. We were called, obviously. Fire department was called. You didn't just show up. It took us less than a minute and a half to get to the house. Nice. Because we were, we had to pull out. I mean, it's between Christmas and New Year's at 630 in the morning. Not a whole lot of traffic. We had to pull out of the parking lot we were in, go across the highway, make a right, cut back in this neighborhood, and we were there. Nice. Right. So, less than a minute and a half. And as we're pulling up, fire's coming up the street. So, everybody was on scene within two minutes. So, as I'm going into the house, the sun, and then the, as we pull up, it's still dark. It's Christmas, you know, it's in the winter time. The sun's out waving us down, so we go to the correct house because sometimes you can be delayed just trying to find the house. Oh, not sometimes. Everybody Plenty wants of to times. have these nice decorative. <laughs> everybody wants to have these really cool looking numbers put in different places on their house. It makes it tough to find them when this house has on their garage, but that house has on their front door, and this house has on. <laughs> so having that person out front to wave us down saves time. Yeah. So I grab my cardiac monitor and I go in and uh, I ask him, you know, he's like, it's my dad. I'm like, where is he? He's like, go in the door make a left end of the hall. Again, extremely good information. You know, uh, I get down there and the daughter is sitting on the bed on the phone with 911 operator and counting. So she's counting compressions for the mom. The mom has dad on the floor and she's doing compressions. One of the reasons I said this was a, uh, you know, American Heart Association dream call is that the uh, wife called because the husband wasn't really responding. When they asked, is he breathing? The wife said, yes. Well, he was doing what was called, uh, we call guppy breathing, Mm -hmm. where it's not breathing. It's more just quick little gasps. Right. And the 911 operator said, is that your husband I can hear in the background? Yes. You need to move him to the floor and you need to start CPR. Wow. Good call. So, yeah, they nailed it on that one. So, we go in and I remember I got him hooked up to the cardiac monitor and fire the first firefighter came through the door and we're looking at the monitor together. He goes, is that V-fib or is that Torsades? I go, or he goes, is that, yeah, is that V-fib or is that Torsades? I said, 
don't care. It's the same treatment. So shock it. we end up shocking this guy twice. Uh, he went to a systole. We're bagging him. We're doing compressions. Uh, we get, we're having a little bit of a hard time because he's down on the far side of the bed and the bed is uh, built into a framework, which is attached to the wall. So we're trying to get things moved around where we can work better. Uh, we didn't have an IV yet. We got to our two minutes, our two minute check. He's got a coherent rhythm. He uh, has a pulse with it. Okay, great. Let's get a blood pressure. I'm sitting there talking. The uh, I'm up at the head by the firefighter, and the firefighter goes, "Is that an EJ, which is an external jugular vein, which we can use?" It's on the neck. I go, "No, right? It's on the neck." I go, "I, I touch it. I'm like, no, that's a tendon." But that's an EJ. I go, do you want to start the IV? He goes, or you can. Nice. (laughs) Okay, cool. We start an EJ on this guy. He comes up and starts becoming combative. Whoa. Well, six guys showed up in his bedroom, started kicking his ass from his point of view. Right, very true. And so we ended up having to sedate this guy to get him out of the room. Family were there. Mom was going to ride with us. Police were there because they always respond just to because just in case they can get there first. A lot of them carry AEDs and they're all CPR certified. So police, I believe, gave the kids a ride to the hospital. We go busting out of there. Uh, We're talking about at the time we were doing hypothermia protocol for post arrest. Right. And but we were four minutes. We're over by uh, post twenty six. Right. Yeah. So we're maybe four minutes from the hospital this time of the morning on this day, <laughs> you know. So call it in, talk to a doc. He's like, I'm like, he's trying to talk. You know, he we had to sedate him. We do a 12 lead. We get to the hospital. <laughs> we go in the ER. This guy's talking, not overly coherently, but hey, the doc is trying to guys. get. <laughs> right. Um, the doc's talking to him and he goes, Sir, do you remember what happened? And I leaned over to the nurse. I go, yeah, six guys showed up in my bedroom, started kicking my ass. And the doc looks at me and goes, that's probably what it looked like. Yeah. That's just, <laughs> you, know? you know, that's very fair. Yeah. And the guy went up to the cath lab. He had a blockage and he walked out of the hospital two days later. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Actually, um, we had a code save and we found out when the son called asking where, the, where, where her cell phone was. And I couldn't figure, I'm like, he seems really adamant about finding a dead woman's cell phone. I'm like, yeah, we'll try and find it and all that stuff. And and I'm like, by that, because I was on the code and I did not think this patient was coming back. And like, you know, just, I'm really sorry about your loss, you know, that kind of stuff. And then he was like, no, she's, she didn't die. I'm like, oh, but yeah, she's like, uh, he's like, yeah, you can, uh, yeah, if you just get, get it to the nursing home, that'd be, that'd be fine. I'm like. Okay, and th- th- this guy was kind of a jerk on scene, and uh, and he was really jerky there. Like, like never thanked us for saving his mom's life. Just wanted to know what we did with the mom's cell phone. That yeah. was it. So, uh, one of the other al- uh, rhythms. Uh, this is kind of a almost like a catch-all rhythm that will treat very much like a Sicily with the same combination of CPR and then epinephrine. Um, is something we call PEA or pulseless electrical activity, and basically. Anything the heart's doing that is not ventricular fibrillation or ventricular tachycardia, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, that doesn't generate a pulse is PEA. It is exactly what it means. And that is there's electrical activity that's pulseless. And so they well, we're, go ahead. And so they still need CPR and they're still going to get epinephrine. One of the differences, though, is that if they're end tidal CO2, 
that is we actually take a measurement of the CO2 that is exhaled because we're going to be breathing for them, but we can measure it as it comes out. But if that entile CO2 is equal to or greater than 20 with an organized rhythm, we actually treat per the shock protocol. In other words, we treat as though the mm-hmm. patient is hypovolemic or, um, well, not low on fluid, not necessarily hypovolemic, but we might use fluid. We basically treat it like for whatever reason. If you listen to our shock episode, that the patient's in shock. And so that is in, the main uh, change. Oklahoma, we actually carried Dopplers for this specific reason. Yeah, Doppler isn't that like a radar yeah, thing. Yeah, well, it helped whenever like bad weather storms were coming in. We just point this thing at the sky and it could tell. Like, <laughs> nice. Uh, the Doppler effect is uh, the difference in motion or sound as it comes towards you or goes away from you. It's why race cars go. Oh, nice. Anyway, yeah, that's the Doppler effect. Medical but stuff and science. The, right. <laughs> um, Doppler radar. Uh, judges the effect of storm fronts using a similar technology to see if there's bad storm fronts. Anyway, our Doppler, <laughs> uh, we would actually put on the carotid artery to hear blood to see if there was blood flow. Oh wow! So you couldn't you couldn't palpate a pulse, you couldn't palpate or auscultate a blood pressure, but you could put this on their neck and you would hear a very faint whoosh whoosh whoosh, and that's when you knew this is not PEA, this is shock. And uh, we would also use it to listen for fetal heart tones in pregnant women. So yeah, PEA. So yeah, you know, if we're if we have uh, either the you know the sign or the symptom that Chris talked about, with the entitled CO two, or if your service carries Dopplers, you know, then you you change your fundamental treatments yeah. away from cardiac arrest to uh, shock resuscitation. Okay. Alrighty. So the next uh, the next uh, algorithms we're going to be talking about here are going to be ventricular fibrillation and pulseless ventricular tachycardia. These are the ones that we shock. These are the ones that get the electricity. Right. So in the same way we started the other ones, we're going to start start by going in, assessing for a pulse, see if there is none. We're going to start our chest compressions. We're going to be bagging the patient, which is breathing for them. Uh, and then we're going to throw on the, the defibrillator pads. And if we throw on the defibrillator pads and we look on the monitor and what we see is essentially a squiggly line that looks like a Richter scale that's completely unorganized, that's ventricular fibrillation. Now, what's going on there is that the heart hasn't stopped, really. It's just that the heart normally has these pacemakers that cause it to kind of squeeze and contract in unison so it can actually push blood out in a... Well, it can actually push blood out. However, sometimes what will happen is that these pacemakers, for whatever reason aren't doing that and you get all the cells of the heart which are all conductively or which are all electrically conductive uh start basically contracting on their own well since they don't contract in unison the heart just sits there and wiggles uselessly it doesn't do anything it doesn't actually pump it just vibrates it fibrillates yeah, well, it fibrillates exactly and so what we'll do is we'll put the pads on mm-hmm. we'll see that and we immediately continue CPR, uh, or I'm sorry, we'll see that. And if it's V-fib, uh, we immediately shock them. And we'll shock, it depends on the monitor, but it's anywhere from 200 to 360 joules uh, these days of electricity. And we shock them. And Mark, tell us what happens when we shock somebody. They do the horizontal mambo. They do. They, oh, God. All right. I, had, they jump. I got a story. All right. So when we, when we shock people, <laughs> essentially what we're doing is all those cells that are wiggling... We're basically giving them one mm-hmm. big fuck you amount of energy, forcing them to do one big contraction <laughs> together, and then they stop. And the idea is that those pacemakers I mentioned earlier take over again, and everyone contracts Hopefully. the way they should. However, but right, the electricity doesn't just go to the heart. 
it goes to the entire body and the body tends to jump and we had a code where we were running and this guy was on the concrete flat on his back and every time we shocked this guy his head would come right up off the ground and just go crack right back on the concrete and it was just a <laughs> sickening thud we're like oh fuck get this man a pillow like that was actually what i said I said oh yeah. fuck get get like a bedroll get like something yeah because like it's because we're gonna we're gonna save the heart and have a traumatic brain yeah because just like we shocked him and his head lifts up and just goes crack and it was just like oh I have been on the scene where... Which, by the way, he did die, and by the way, it was not from a TBI. He didn't hit that hard. Anyway, continue. (laughs) Uh, I have been on the call where uh, partner shocked the patient and did not pay attention to hand placement. Whoops. And he was kneeling over the guy's arm, and yes, it hit him right in the balls. (laughs) And disabled him for a minute or so. Yeah. Give me a second. It's all whack, too. So, after we defibrillate... We're going to jump right back into chest compressions for another two minutes, and we're going to try and get that IV or that IO axis that we talked about earlier. And then they're going to get a milligram of epinephrine. By the way, epinephrine is a hormone that the body normally makes. You've probably heard of it. Uh, it just helps, like Mark said, it just helps. Uh, it it increases the rate, the heart increases your heart rate. Uh, it increases the contractility of the heart, and it also um, shrinks the vasculature. So it makes it easier for your body to maintain a blood pressure. Once the heart does start back up again, uh, what we'll do is we'll at the two minute mark again, we'll take a look. Um, if they're still in V fib, we shock them again. We do CPR for two minutes. If they're still in V fib, they're going to get shocked again, but now they're also going to get something called an anti dysrhythmic in this case, amiodarone. Now go back and listen to our, we have a cardiac episode where we actually talk about how amiodarone works, but antidysrhythmics are a class of medications or drugs. They're a class of drugs that are geared towards stopping dysrhythmias. A dysrhythmia is basically anything that's not a normal heart rhythm. And in this case, amiodarone specifically targets, well, it, doesn't speci- it targets a few things, but it's very efficient at targeting the ventricles, which is what ventricular fibrillation Oh, is. but no more, no mo- no better than lidocaine, according to the ALP study. Very, very true. And so... And I would rather go with lidocaine, lidocaine personally. Just, <laughs> yeah, well, and that's... And actually, Mark... I mean, he laughs, but he, Mark brings up a good point. Mark is very, very, very old. And so, <laughs> when he started... I don't think that's the point I was making, oh, Chris. Uh, and so, when he started, <laughs> lidocaine was the antidysrhythmic of choice. And uh, they started using that. And so you will find Paramex have been around prefer lidocaine because it's the one they're used to. Is what they used. And it's really difficult. No, I have another reason. You don't speak for me. I think I'm going. I mean, I add it. So sure I do. Uh, (laughs) I like it because it doesn't froth up in the jar. (laughs) Oh, very true. So amiodarone does froth. If you wiggle it around, Mm -hmm. it'll sit there. It'll it'll froth up. And what what do the kids in our uh, ambulance do all the time when they're being picked up, carried, riding around the ambulance? They have perfectly smooth rides with no jostling whatsoever. Right. No, they shake it like a Polaroid so picture. Like, it's ridiculous. Right. And you say I'm old, but when I started, we still carried Bertillium. It sounds like something a light bulb uses to glow. <laughs> like that. No, Bertillium was, it was because uh, the cardiac arrest algorithm was shock, 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 tube epi shock, little shock, little shock, big shock, big shock, mega shock. Are you sure it's not like this is a fluorescent bulb, this is an incandescent, this is a Bertillium, this is a <laughs> no, phosphorus? No. No, You're not just positive. confused because I know you were around when the light bulb was invented, so this might. <laughs> <laughs> that was your dad, yeah, fair first enough. of all. 
Uh, no, it was a shock. So back then we did stack shocks. In fact, my very first cardiac arrest, I shocked the patient 15 times. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but you would shock them and uh, you drop a tube, then you give an epi, and then you give lidocaine, lidocaine, two rounds of lidocaine, and then you went to Bertillium. Now, there's a specific reason why we don't carry Bertillium anymore. Because uh, the light bulbs don't need it. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> we ran out of natural stores of Bertillium. They can't find it anymore in nature. And it was way too hard to synthesize. <laughs> And so they came up with amiodarone. Fair enough. Um, yeah. Cool. So. <laughs> I hear the words, but I don't think you really think that was cool. <laughs> so, yeah. So we keep doing that two minute jive. So we'll give the amiodarone. Another two minutes goes by. They get epinephrine and shocked. Another two minutes goes by. They get epi- They get amiodarone again. Half the dose this time. They get shocked again. We do CPR for another two minutes. And then we start giving. We give epinephrine again. <laughs> Defibrillate. Two minutes, and then we give them lidocaine and then defibrillate. Now, this is one of the reasons that some people will come away from lidocaine, some of the newer people, is that lidocaine is 1.5 milligrams per kilogram, which means you got to do a little math. Um, Amiodarone is 300 milligrams and then 150 milligrams. So it's the same dose no matter what. No math required. Now, Freaking millennials never really want to put any work into it. Well, and here's the other thing, too, is that the math for lidocaine actually isn't that hard. And... No. Mark taught me a trick a long time ago because we ran a code and we go, I don't think it was a code. We were giving lidocaine, I want to say, though, for a guy who was in VTAC, but he wasn't coded. He had a pulse. And Mark was going to prep the lidocaine. And I'm sitting there like, gosh, I think this guy, okay, uh, he says he weighs 231 pounds. Uh, converting that to kilograms, I get 112. And then Mark's like, yeah, we're just going to give him 100 kilograms worth. I'm just like, Okay, he's like, just make the math easy because you're guessing his weight anyway. So you <laughs> exactly. might as well guess a number that's easy because it's a completely guessed weight. You don't know it. Why guess a hard one? And it's like, right. okay, fair enough. Yeah, so he's 220 pounds. Mm-hmm. There's 100, 100 kilograms, so 150 milligrams of lidocaine. Boom. Yeah, and it worked out just fine. And so then we'll give mm-hmm. lidocaine again, defibrillate, do two more rounds of uh, CPR. And we're just going to keep doing those cycles of CPR and a rhythm analysis and defibrillation, except the thing that we're going to do differently is every two minutes, they'll get epinephrine. Another two minutes go by, they'll get nothing because we're done giving them antidysrhythmic. Two minutes goes by, they'll get epinephrine. And yeah, by the time you get there, they're still not back from that rhythm. Well, clinically, I think they're medium things rare. Things but, aren't looking good. Yeah, yeah. they've been shocked. That's what, the, uh, that's what the medic I saw at the hospital, he's my FTO, and I showed him the strip. And I'm like, yeah, he saw 15 times. He said, yeah, that's uh, that's well right. done. Right, exactly, you know? yeah. Because this is electricity. It will cook on the way He's through. He's driving. Now, we, we say that, Joe, I don't think I've ever heard of a patient who, I mean, you'll have some superficial burn injuries and that stuff. I don't think I've ever heard of a patient who was shocked so many times that we cooked their heart. No, no, no. And here's the other thing is, so what? It wasn't working anyway. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> well, the thing is, is that we're starting out from... Was that? Yeah, that was pretty... There's probably a better way to put that. Uh, and the thing is, is to remember that we started out with the patient dead. That's true. And so, we're trying to get to a better place, but sometimes that just isn't going to happen. Well, so the fun thing is, I think Mark and I each came up with three protocols that we wanted to do with stories attached to them. Mm-hmm. And we're like, all right, let's see how many we can do before an hour. Um, so out of the six we prepared, we got two. <laughs> right. 
Right. I almost want to say, if you guys like this episode and this is the style you guys like and you like the story time, let us know because... If the, if this is responded to well, we'll do another one next yeah, week. We'll do we'll do another one next week. If you guys like this, let us and know. Uh, we'll, we'll watch the it, numbers. We'll make it more stories. <laughs> we'll make it more stories. Yeah, exactly. They're all fake anyway. I'm joking. They're not. Yeah. I mean, they are a little bit, but because we have to. So, but yeah, we're at a we're at a decent amount of time here. We don't want to take up too much of your day. So yeah, like I said, if this does well, we'll do another one next week or maybe the week after. You know, but very soon. Yeah. So, if there's something, a specific protocol you want to know about, like if you people have breathing problems or something like that, email us. Let us know. Message us. You can get a hold of us on social media. We're on uh, Twitter at MedSideStuff, M-E-D-S-I-D-E-S-T-U-F-F. We're also on Instagram at MedicalStuff52. And we're on Facebook at MedicalStuff. And if you do want to send us an email, we really like it. Please do so at MedSideStuff at Yahoo.com. Thank you to everybody who sent emails to us, especially the people who are on Spotify, letting us know uh, that you're on Spotify. We do appreciate that very much. Everything is going really well, and it is all because of you. So, yeah, please keep it up. Whatever you're doing, it's working. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, and uh, as we get better, or as we get bigger and we can start uh, doing some monetization, then we can uh, continue to grow the grow the uh, podcast. Right. So we can reach more people. So get better quality. I would like to eventually one day get to the point where we could do a, maybe a small tour. Oh, that'd be fun. You know, yeah, or do some live shows somewhere. Mm-hmm. A stream would be nice, and, uh, like live stream. Yeah. yeah. So maybe we'll do that one week. We'll uh, figure out a time when we can actually get together and we'll do a live stream episode. That'll be exciting. So yeah, uh, one person has requested that we do a video uh, version of a live stream so that people can see us doing recording the podcast as we sure. go. I say we both have faces made for radio, but hey, we'll give it a try. Hey, I can be pretty sometimes. <laughs> Just ask my mom. All right. I think that's it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, thank you all for listening. Please continue to spread the word. We love it. Thank you for the uh, awesome reviews. Five stars are always appreciated. And we will talk to you next week. Toast. Toast.